Hey, I'm Franco Fubini, and welcome to Natura's podcast, Transform the Food System. Every other week, I'll be talking to a different guest about how we can use our collective power to build a better food system. As Natura's founder, I'll be calling on our community of chefs and growers, as well as anthropologists, authors, scientists, and sustainability experts to talk about how our everyday food choices can bring about radical change. In our last episode, we tracked back to the beginning of Alice Waters' career, when her first experience of Fraise de Bois triggered a lifetime pioneering slow food through phenomenal flavor. If you didn't catch our last episode, it's well worth a listen once you finish this one. This week, we trace how this momentum has made her the educator, activist, and legend she is today. I think it, it's fair to say that kind of the Edible Schoolyard Project is one of the most influential food charities in the world. And you founded the school, Edible Schoolyard in, in, in 95 with an attempt to kind of dismantle this broken school food system in a very hands-on, very direct, uh, direct way that was, again, quite revolutionary at, at the time. And there's obviously still a, a very long way to go. Um, but do you think that education around food has improved? over the past 25 years? Without any question. I mean, I wanted to know right away whether these ideas were universal. Were they just Berkeley ideas? And because we live in California and we have good weather. So I wanted to know whether they could be in a city or whether they could be in a part of the country that was cold. So we piloted a project in LA at a big school district. We did one in New Orleans, right after the big hurricane Katrina. We did one in North Carolina, and we did one in Brooklyn, New York. We also did one in upstate New York, where it was very cold. And we helped them sort of get off the ground financially. But then we realized that they had their own way of running the project. Each place has it had its own traditions and experiences with food. And so we, we let go and they've all flourished. But it confirmed for me, without a doubt, that we were scaling values. We were scaling the values of stewardship, of nourishment, of community, of diversity, of equality. That's what we were scaling. And now there are almost 7,000 schools around the world that are on our website. And all of the information can be downloaded for free. And people are using that network and finding the schools in their neighborhoods. But I went back to visit the one in New Orleans and it just took my breath away. <laughs> this was a grammar school that um, was sort of kindergarten through sixth grade. And they planted a huge garden out in the back. And they made up a song. And every day, the kids would sing the song about the garden as they all went out there to work. 
and I was so charmed by it. It was like a five-minute song, and these little kids all singing it. And they talked to me about how a farmer had come with eight different colors of watermelon and opened them up, and they all tasted it. But it's experiences like that that kind of change your life. And I realized that, that this can happen anywhere. New York built a, a greenhouse that could move in and out so that it could be uh, covering the vegetables in the winter and they could be open to the full sun in the summer. And it was that kind of imagination, that determination, that is kind of a global collaboration. And uh, again, I, I can't think of anything more important for the future of this planet. Yeah, I think that it's, it's the greatest hope, right? The, the children and and they are they are the future really mm -hmm. and when i i get asked what is the biggest challenge that we face sometimes and as an organization or you know as a business and it's really education right it's it, it's, <laughs> it's education because we we could we could sell a lot more artichokes if people knew what to do with them but the industrial <laughs> system has i i call it de-education you know it's dumbed everyone down so and I, I think if, you know, the, la the lack of knowledge is, is lack of power in a way. We are what we eat. <laughs> this is my manifesto, which is coming out on June 1st. <laughs> but it's basically describing exactly what she said. Talk about dumbing down. It's taught us the values of fast, cheap, and easy. That more is better. That time is money that everything should be available 24-7, that cooking is drudgery, that farming is drudgery, that it's okay to eat in our cars, that, you know, I want the same thing wherever I go. I want that cappuccino to be exactly the same. That's why I wanted Starbucks at, uh, in Italy. You know, it's the uniformity, the ideas that, that, that everything that's different is kind of suspect. And we've digested all of this. So how do we break out? We break out by eating differently, being, you know, taught about food in schools when we're little, that we can break out by deciding that we're going to learn about where our food comes from. I mean, because it will be shocking. What's in it and where does it come from? Who is the farmer? Where does he live? Where does she live? Where? Where does that meat come from? And then you find out. 
I think of that huge boat in the Suez Canal. It went ashore, really exposed the industrial global food system, animals on board that boat. I mean, did we learn something from that? Well, immediately they were trying to figure out how to get around the world without going through the Suez Canal. <laughs> when in fact, <laughs> I want to know everybody who, who makes the things that I'm eating, that grows the food, the farms. It's my great pleasure to know. And our future is really local. I really believe that. And I've always believed that, that you know, Carlo Petrini is speaking for the Slow Food International. And he's always believed that it's going to be, you know, the small farmer and the people who buy locally that are going to save the planet. Yeah, very much. And, and food and the production of food is, we're realizing more than ever now how connected it is with, with saving the planet, right? Just the, just the one, the, our soils, but then there's the whole climate crisis, which is so linked to, to farming and the ability of, of, of farming to, uh, to help with climate change and drawing down carbon and, and also then our own health. It's, it, it's so, it's so obvious when you realize it, right? It's the being, being respectful of nature, realizing that we are part of nature, we are the product of nature, we're not above it. Um, and that by eating well, and by being in tune with nature, we will we'll be better, we'll be healthier, we'll be happier, and the planet will be, will be a lot happier as well. That happier is the word, pleasure is the word. That's why I've always loved the slow food movement, because you're winning people over. You're giving them a taste. This isn't hard to do. The fast food industry would like us to believe that it's hard and expensive and it's out of reach to most people. And those are myths. It's not. And people have lived this way, you know, before 60, 70 years ago. Everybody lived like this on the planet. We didn't have frozen food. We didn't, we didn't do that. We preserved for the winter. We ate seasonally. So coming back to it is not difficult. It's just a, a pleasure. It tastes good. <laughs> sure. Is there a, one lesson that you could share with parents to help them create a positive relationship with, with food for their children? Cook with them. I made a garden in my backyard and you could do it in a windowsill, but do it with your kid, plant a seed and watch it grow. But more than anything else, it's like everybody has a job in the kitchen. Allow them to be at the stove, that dangerous fire that always gets them. You know, maybe they're, you know, just turning a tortilla with the tongs on the stove. 
but they're learning about the heat and about, they're calculated and they're excited that they did that. That they, the simplest thing, uh, you know, it's, it's all shelling peas together. You know, you all do that together and then you cook them and then you eat them and then you have the prize of saying, I did that. And that's what's missing. My daughter wrote a book called Always Home. <laughs> Strange to have it called that at this time. <laughs> and she wrote a memoir for childhood. And what one of the things is, of course, a lot about me, but uh, she talks about how I gave her peas in a bowl when she came home from school. And they just had a little butter and salt pump. And it was a big bowl of beans. And she would eat them with such delight. And then she was reflecting on that in her book. And she said, you know, my mom must have really loved me to shell that many peas for me when I came home from school. And <laughs> I, I just thought, well, I didn't ever think of it that way. I was showing her how much I loved her. I knew that she liked them. I knew that they were good for her. I knew those things and I wanted to please her. So it's, it doesn't take much because food is about love. It's about giving and it's so gratifying to engage a child in that experience at a very early age of giving it to someone else. Once you teach a child how to cook, they can do that and give it to someone else and receive the, the gratitude. Yeah. And they'll always want to make that because they felt that. And I know that that's a big reason why I wanted to be a cook, because people liked what I cooked and sort of it meant that they liked me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it makes me think again, you know, about culture and, and the, the importance of food you know, I think a lot of us, or uh, unfortunately, a lot of a lot of humanity doesn't understand that food is as much, or as you said, even even more important to culture than the language. Almost, they're they're to me, they're kind of on par more, and and it, it goes beyond the food. It's that moment of sitting at the table, of you know, the time when when you talk as a family, when you when you you know share a meal a meal with friends that's what's been one of the most difficult things about about covid is is that lack of you know sharing those moments around a table and around food and lingering at a table you know for two three hours afterwards um it's that for for the person cooking it's that joy of of sharing that cooking with love and having that love come across and that desire to to give something of yourself 
And for the people receiving it and at that table, it's just that, you know, that, that joy and that pleasure of, of sharing and that community around food and how that connects us around the world. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a very, it's very powerful. And it's one of the, I think it's one of the things that makes us uh, human in the way that we are. Exactly. But food is a language. You don't need to speak when you offer food. And I learned that language really well when I went to Turkey. I learned it in India as well. But people gave me things, gave me things and didn't expect anything in return. Nothing, not even that I would say thank you or, or stay there. They just gave it to me and I have aspired to give in that way. I, I really learned from that experience of traveling and it's why it's so important uh, to teach about the cultures of food around the world to children when they're very young because eating with chopsticks makes a child curious about how people do that on a regular basis. Where did that come from? You know, it's, it sparks that interest in otherness, which we feel is something negative and all of a sudden it becomes something exciting eating with chopsticks <laughs> you know rolling things up in a tortilla and eating with your hands it's 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 the the beauty of it it of course the taste of it but it's the the otherness of that that becomes desirable. You don't have to teach diversity. Eating nine colors of carrots <laughs> is diversity. You're, you're saying, oh my God, a carrot isn't just yellow. And every day I can have a different color salad. Wow. And the flavors are so different of those carrots. And I know. That's it's the... just we have been, you know, in a monoculture. We have been narrowed down so that we don't experience this wonderment. <laughs> and that's what I think biodiversity is the thrill that I have in cooking. Uh, it's just, wow, I, I, I can't believe it. I can't believe that it exists and we just have to dig it up literally or plant it <laughs> how boring would life be if we all look the same that's what i always say you know they have this idea that you know people talk about oh the the you know we should sell ugly produce and i'm like it's not ugly that's the right the wrong way around like isn't it isn't it abnormal like if we all had the same color hair and looked completely identical it would be quite bizarre the scars are the nice things in 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 people exactly. and in fruit it's that character
This is a reminder that you're listening to Transform the Food System with me, Franco Fubini, and today I'm talking to Alice Waters. I wanted to quote your mission statement from the Edible Schoolyard Project because it, it chimes very rightfully with what we're doing at Natura. So if we change the criteria for purchasing all food in public schools and buy directly from the farmers and ranchers that are, that are caring for the land regeneratively, we will address climate change and teach the next generation the values of nourishment, stewardship, and community. Um, we all have to recognize the impact we're having on our food system and the, and the planet through the, the choices we make. Beyond schools, how can we drive real change in the way people buy and eat? I think the best place is at the farmer's market. I think going to the farmer's market Cooking with your friends. It's like cooking with my friends on a regular basis is so great. Um, we uh, I go to the farmer's market on a Saturday. We have dinner on Sunday nights. Uh, one time one person goes to the, uh, brings the food next time I do, then another person, and then we just make it up. Uh, what should we cook? Who feels like cooking? Sort of the same experience as we have at Shea. Um, you know, what do we do? And and sometimes we have a lot of ideas. Sometimes we come in in my library and we look it up. But it's that that eating together. And maybe sometimes we invite a few people more to dinner. But it's an ongoing just education and pleasure. But I do think it's the best way to learn is to do it together, not try to do it yourself. Get the ingredients, say, what are we going to do with it? <laughs> yeah. Um, you're just going to publish a book now, right? It's called We Are What We Eat. Uh, a slow food manifesto. <laughs> there we go. I like that. My guess is it's going to highlight a lot of issues around the food system. Indeed it is. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about, about the book and what it is that you want readers to take away from it? I want them to understand that they're eating more than the food. They're eating the values that come with the food. So when they eat fast food, they buy it out of a vending machine. They're picking out the plastic and thinking it's okay. Oh, this is so convenient to have something so quick and easy and in plastic that it's okay to throw it away. There's always more where that came from. They're learning that everything should be available all the time, that everything should look the same. They're learning that, as I said before, that cooking is drudgery, that farming is drudgery. Who cares where it came from? I want it fast, cheap, and easy. And cheap is a big, big part of it. Cheap and fast. 
that makes it really difficult for people to understand why they should make, why they should pay more for food. And we don't account for why it's so cheap. <laughs> and I'm trying to point them to the industrial food system and the way that it raises animals, disregards workers, all of the COVID real tragedies happened in these factories big industrial factories that were producing food. The greed of the industrial food system. I want them to know about what's happening. And so I examine each one of these values. And then I say there's good news <laughs> and a slow food system. And this is how you benefit from diversity and from stewardship and from community and from beauty and from cooking and all of these ways that can change your everyday life. And that uh, you wanna take a longer route to go someplace because it is more beautiful to go that way. Speed has been given such a high priority when in fact, slowness is something that gives you um, a good look at something that you can treasure. And, and so I'm, I'm talking about fast food values and slow food values. And then at the end, I'm giving you all of these ways that we can engage and education is top of the list, but how everyone can really afford to do this. Everyone can. And I do believe that knowing about it in detail really helps you to make that change. I, I love this idea of uh, eating the values. Thank you. That really is what I think it is because there you are, you know, at the fast food restaurant. You know, I just did that experiment. I talked about it in the book of uh, I was stranded in Kansas. I was going to the Land Institute and I found myself in this town and I was hungry. I thought, well, maybe I should go to a McDonald's. I had never gone. So I went and I timed my experience <laughs> and getting it, taking a bite, throwing it all the garbage out, it took five minutes. But the thing that really disappointed me is I thought 
it would taste, there would be a taste there that was irresistible in some way. Maybe there was a little salt on the fries that got me, but not really anything. And I just dumped the whole thing right in the garbage, <laughs> in and out. But it's that that we don't know the other way. And we, a lot of people live their lives in that real poverty of, of not only ugliness, but of, of poor health and lack of togetherness and love and beauty and all that. I'm, I'm sounding very corny. <laughs> No, it's so it, it's true, and um, yeah, and I, that that concept again of eating the values, but also the eating with intent. It is determination, eating, and what you learn. If if you just don't believe the advertising, I mean, it's such advertising. It's as if advertising confers value. But if it doesn't have a label that you recognize, you don't want it. What is this thing? It's again, gets to that place of otherness. If it isn't Starbucks, I don't want that coffee. Why don't I want it? It's as if it's not good. It's not tasty it's as if it's wrong and it's so serious that how that goes into every part of your life you want uniformity with housing you want uniformity with clothes everything you think comes from the values that you digest with what you're eating you throw out everything. You want a new skirt every two months. The old one is not worth it anymore. You don't care where it comes from. Nothing. Handmade doesn't have any meaning. It takes too much time and it costs too much. And you have to have it for your whole life. What? <laughs> What happened to the repair shops, right? Where you used to take a vacuum, a vacuum cleaner and, and get it fixed or your TV. Now it's, now you throw them away and you go buy a new one. Well, we had, I have to just tell you as a last story because I can't resist. We had an Afghani guy who came as a refugee really early on to Shebanese and he was washing dishes and he stayed there. Uh, he was 23 years old when he came, and he would not let me throw out anything in the restaurant. He said, I'm going to fix it. He ultimately became the maintenance manager of the restaurant. He made the copper lamps at the restaurant. He made them at home. He knew how to do everything from repair a motor 
to to uh, uh, just uh, whether every part of it he knew how to build the gate in front of the restaurant. I mean, I his knowledge blew my mind, and he is a dear friend of mine still. He and his family live nearby, and they call me, and they tell me that they think about me at this time. And that connection, again, um, makes me know that I don't know anything, that the knowledge of the past has sort of just disappeared in two generations. And the empowerment that it gives you to make something, to fix something, to sew something by hand is, they, those are not meaningless tasks. We don't need robots to do this. We need to do it ourselves. And again, Mama Suri comes back. Our hands are the instrument of our minds. That's what she thought, and it's using our hands in meaningful ways. That it gives us a kind of information that is priceless. That knowledge breaks the dependency on, on, yes. on the system. And it also... And the whole idea of making money that drives everything, it makes that wrong and false. It doesn't take money to sew your dress. It takes time. But what are you spending time doing? Holding your <laughs> mindlessly <laughs> sweeping through, through your face. <laughs> well, that's what I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Sh that's the. Huh? I, I know. I'm just rattling off. I think <laughs> all of a sudden you're getting into my manifesto, and I'm sending you a copy as soon as it comes out, so that you can. Uh, Amazing. I'd love your opinion. I want to share a very quick story that. Uh, remind that came into my mind when when uh when you were talking about the slowing things down just a moment ago and i uh i used to go with my family to to the amalfi coast on holiday when uh -huh. i was a kid and we had a we had a, a little motorboat and obviously as a, as a kid with my brother we were young and you like going fast on the motorboat anyways many many years later um we go back to go back to the Amalfi Coast, and um, as I'm, I'm sure you've been there, it's incredibly beautiful coastline, probably one of the most beautiful in the world. Um, and there's this typical boat from the from from Sorrento, from the area, which is called a gozzo, which is a a simple wooden boat. And obviously, when I was a kid, um, there were some friends of ours that had the gozzos, and it was it always felt a little bit boring to go on their gozzo. It was a lot more fun to be on on the motorboat. And what I realized is that later on in life, 
with my family and I'm, I'm on the Gozo going along the same waters and looking at the same coastline. And it's almost like an accordion, right? Had slowed everything down and just like an accordion kind of opens up. It's like it unfolded all of this coastline, right? Starting to see all of the detail. And it made me realize how intelligent it was that that boat is the one that is used in the area because by navigating the coast in that way, you see it, you, you, it's almost like it just unfolds in front of you because of the slowness of the pace. So that's what came to mind when, uh, when uh, you were telling the story about slowing down. But it is when we're in our cars, we're not walking anymore. We're not seeing the neighborhood. We're not smelling it. We're not experiencing life in the same way that we used to. We used to ride our bikes all around the neighborhood. And now we're just zooming by them. And we're not seeing anything. And so I you know, to think of electric cars as a solution to the world is not having a car at all the solution to the world <laughs> really to walking it's funny i started seeing all of the different plants and bushes and cracks and crevices you, you you start seeing flowers and you're like it was a moment i was like oh my god like this is that's why everyone rides around these boats because it it's you this is the pace that you need to appreciate this coastline and you can't zoom zoom past it so Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Franco. It was a real, I know, it was a, such, a, such a pleasure. I hope to see you in California or in New York. Likewise. Um, Likewise. And I still and need I, to go to Chez Panisse. You do. You do. Yeah. But I want to send you the book, so be sure you tell Alina to I will. get that book to you. Thank you and so much. Any, any way that we can support Edible Schoolyard, I was talking to, to Ruthie before COVID, Mm -hmm. um, from the River Cafe because I know she was uh, she was planning on attending again and then everything obviously COVID hit but in, in any way that we can it's very dear to us we do a lot of work with chefs in schools in, in the UK um, and we started an education team at Natura um, so yeah Great. any way that we can help you've been listening to Transform the Food System with Franco Fubini a Natura podcast the easiest way to join the food system revolution right now is to share, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. By helping us get the word out, you're adding to the community of voices demanding radical change. Join us for the next episode in two weeks with Dan Barber, the straight-talking chef, co-owner of Blue Hill at Stone Barns, and man behind the eye-opening book, The Third Plate. Now driving change at seed level with his company, Row 7, he professes that flavor is never finished. We're only getting started.